Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. I'm delighted that joining me once again is Phil Bloomer, who's Executive Director of the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre. Welcome back to the podcast, Phil. Thank you very much, Ian. We're going to talk today a little bit about some reasons for optimism in terms of how business is engaging in human rights. There's lots of reasons for pessimism, but Phil and I want to come up with some reasons for optimism. Phil, you wrote recently in a blog that we can't afford the luxury of pessimism. What do you mean by that and why is it? You know, as human beings, it's easy to fall into pessimism faced with so many enormous challenges, systemic challenges, wicked problems that we have in the world. We also know that we're standing on the edge of a precipice of climate breakdown. We also know that we're facing enormous challenges of inequality, of power and wealth in the world. Faced with that, we have genuine choices. We can either fall into despair or we can rebel against that desperation and act together collectively to try and approach these problems and overcome them. There are systems that we know are driving us over the edge, but we also know there are genuine movements across the world who are seeking solutions and better futures. We don't have the luxury of pessimism, but we do have the opportunity for a realism tinged with optimism that allows us to move forward together with both inspiration and aspiration. What then are some reasons for optimism in this context? First of all, I'd say there's an extraordinary movement of people coming together, movements by, of course, civil society, but increasingly also of governments starting to collaborate a little more than we've seen in the last decade. And also, importantly from our side, the responsible investors and responsible companies that are stepping out from the pack and being prepared to distinguish themselves more fully, not only in their operations and business models, but also in their advocacy itself. Secondly, this move towards regulation, a sea change that we're beginning to see an emergent shift by governments who've been extraordinarily timid about anything to do with shifting business incentives and business regulation, and now seeing that there are real opportunities to shift those incentives, to shift the regulatory standards, to send powerful market signals that insist that companies start to behave in a much more responsible fashion both in terms of the climate and environment, as well as in terms of human rights and social justice. That's also matched with elements within the ESG, the responsible investor debates. There's a lot more to discuss there, which I'm sure we'll get into. But nevertheless, that for that becoming a powerful lever for us to pull on. And then finally, I think there's areas such as the changes that are happening in the application of technology and the willingness to start to regulate some of that. And then the conclusions coming out from Ukraine and the extraordinary effort by some governments matched by some companies to behave responsibly in terms of this extraordinary conflict and what that means for other conflicts around the world. Let's go into some of those in a bit more detail. What evidence are you seeing in terms of public perception changing? Is it a public clamour for change, do you think, Phil? I think there is. I think it's expressed in many different fashions. What we have at the moment is a genuine sense that, first of all, politicians, as we know, will only really act boldly in the areas of business and human rights and business and climate change when they know that the public clamour is sufficient to drown out the enormous vested interest for business as usual. And what we're seeing, whether you look at the movements such as Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, The movements also of trade unions as Labour begins to gain a little more power in the current circumstances. 
if you look at the green movement and the indigenous movement, all these movements are starting to really express more fully, not only their own demands in more assertive fashions, but also their willingness to collaborate and cooperate across their different interests and find common ground. And I think that's a very exciting area. But I also want to really emphasize the fundamental importance for politicians of seeing unusual alliances. Obviously, it's very easy for politicians to dismiss the same old, same old from civil society. But when civil society is also bringing and collaborating with voices of responsible investors, of responsible companies, as we're seeing now, for instance, in Europe on the Corporate Sustainability and Due Diligence Directive, that's when politicians also feel that they've got a little bit more flanking support for them to move more boldly forward because they can't be described as anti-business by many of the vested interests, including some business associations, because there's already a business voice saying, we want this kind of regulation. We want this shift in business incentives because we know it's important to the long-term building of value in our companies, but also for the environment in which we have to operate in the long term. Let's move on to thinking a little bit about the investment community. You mentioned ESG. Changing demands from investors have been cited in the climate change debate as drivers for progress in climate change. What about business and human rights then? How are you seeing specific demands from investors acting as drivers for progress? ESG has to be heavily caveated. Anybody looking at ESG has the right to look at this with a high level of scepticism, given the claims, the PR claims that have been made for many of the portfolios that just do not stand up to scrutiny. So that's absolutely fair. And therefore, we need the kind of taxonomies that are being developed by Europe that insists on minimum standards and definition of what ESG actually means. That's very different from the ideological opposition to ESG, as we've seen from places like the state of Texas, where this is associated somehow with woke capitalism, and they want to reassert the primacy of short-term interests of shareholders. That's one of the tensions and conflicts that there is. But from our perspective, the environmental side of this has developed substantially over the last five and 10 years. The S has always been the orphan of ESG. What we've, I think we've seen in the last two, three years is a significant shift by a number of investors to understand that these are now not just nice to have, but are increasingly material risks. Material risks, and that's why this dual materiality or double materiality has come much more to the fore in investors' debates. For instance, the example of Lafarge and the fact that it was fined $770 million and had to accept blame for what they did in Syria where they put their own immediate short-term returns over the interests of the essential human rights of people in that country and the ending of that war, that's one indication of where investors can see that if they're not building in much more fully the S, it's going to come back and bite them. The other area, for instance, is on modern slavery, where we've seen the actions of the Customs and Border Patrol in the United States now being matched, hopefully in Europe, with a new act there on import bans for products associated with modern slavery. The kind of extraordinary impact of those import bans now makes for investors these issues much more material than they've been in the past. 
but it's interesting that there's been almost more clamour about the EU regulations that involve banning the importation of products that have deforestation in their supply chain rather than human rights issues. But that's just the way things have been. The concept of just transition then in the context of the shift to renewable energy is one that's also been talked about a lot. How can that concept of a just transition be captured to ensure the inclusion of human rights, do you think, Phil? This is now a massive challenge for 2023, particularly with the announcement of things such as the just energy transition partnerships that are going to be developed with massive investment going into countries such as South Africa and Indonesia. Rightly so. The danger, of course, is that in many countries, what we are tracking in our work as the Business and Human Rights Resource Centre are the large scale abuse of indigenous people's lands, of rural communities' lands, as these land-hungry industries, such as renewable energy and the just transition mineral extraction, seek out those places where they can place these industries. So we are very concerned that we get ahead of the game, that the investors and the companies themselves really start to engage with the business models that are going to allow them to deliver a fast transition because it's also going to be a fair transition. It will only be fast if it can retain public trust, as we've seen time and time again. And if it's associated with land grabs, if it's associated with exploitation, if it's associated also with the silencing of human rights defenders, which is another key area that we've been tracking over this last period, then it will lose that public trust. It will lose that social license to operate. But there's a great opportunity for renewable energy companies, for the transition mineral companies to really change their business model, integrate those aspects of human rights that are fundamentally important, such as the free prior and informed consent of indigenous communities. And we're seeing now models being developed in, from Canada through to New Zealand, where these kind of approaches where you've got genuine co-benefit genuine co-ownership between the communities and the companies, you get the kind of fast and fair transitions that we so desperately need around the world. In all of this then, what's the role of technology? How can technology help? It's cited so often as the great solution or providing so many different types of solutions, but for your perspective, what do you see the role of technology being here specifically? As a person with a background in science, I've always believed that technology can deliver, and certainly ICT technology can deliver extraordinary emancipation from drudgery. It can deliver emancipation as I have every day when I can, through my browser, find pretty much any information that I need to be able to understand the world better. It can also ensure that we've got real democratic opportunities that weren't there before. But equally, technology can drive enormous levels of exploitation, as we've seen with the coercive algorithms that are being used in the gig economy, as we've seen with the misclassification of workers in the gig economy, as we've seen also in the application of surveillance technology in entirely inappropriate forms, and indeed the discriminatory algorithms that are being deployed by police forces, for instance, and security forces around the world. So, there's an enormous emancipatory potential. What matters is how, first of all, the decisions are made as to what products are brought to market. And that's a lot to do with the way venture capitalists operate in this field, because they are the gatekeepers as to what comes to market. If they're prepared to demonstrate genuine due diligence in the way that they're looking at how can these technologies be used for emancipation or immiseration, and equally then the way in which the regulatory standards ensure that the proper licensing of these products occurs, 
then there are real opportunities to shift this technology towards those emancipatory futures and away from the darker futures that we all want these technologies to avoid. We talked before about how events can drive significant change. We've spoke about the impacts of the pandemic on business and human rights issues. What are you seeing in terms of the impacts of the war in Ukraine? We're, we're a year in. What's that done to change the business and human rights paradigm? Yeah. The war on Ukraine has demonstrated, first of all, an extraordinary willingness on the part of democratic governments to cooperate together to also impose sanctions which created a very hostile commercial environment for business to operate in Russia. And therefore, we saw an understandable response to that with many companies coming out of Russia. There's no doubt that that's had a genuine direct impact on the perception of many people in Russia regarding the legitimacy of that invasion into Ukraine, as well as real implications for the economy of Russia. The critical thing now for this is that there are about 120 companies that remain in Russia. And they have really demonstrated none of the due diligence, the heightened due diligence, which the UN Guiding Principles insists has to be applied if you're going to remain in conflict zones. There is real need now for us to put pressure on those businesses. But I am optimistic in one way, and that is that the mobilization law of last September by Putin has meant that all the companies that remain in Russia are now essentially being complicit in the enormous harm that is being created for Ukrainians. They're complicit because that mobilization law insists that all companies, domestic and international, that remain there have to be part of the mobilization and the flow of recruits into the Russian army, an army that is now, as we know, involved directly in war crimes. There is always that sense among some companies that they can say, oh, well, we were coerced into it. We didn't want to do it, but we were coerced. We couldn't remain there unless we were prepared to do it. You've only got to go back to the Nuremberg trials to know that that issue of coercion was no defence for those companies that were involved in the Nazi war machine. And so in the same way, it's not going to stand up this time. And I think the companies that are remaining there really are running extraordinarily heightened risks for themselves, but also for their investors by remaining there, unless they can demonstrate that they are delivering an absolutely essential product uh, not products, but product that otherwise is genuinely essential to Russian people's welfare and could not be delivered by other means. Certainly the Nuremberg defence isn't going to wash. I've seen that in many different places the past few months. What specifically are you hoping to see from business in 2023 and beyond? I believe it's an extraordinary exciting year, one where I think there can be an enormous effort on the part of all of us to deliver on what we know to be the two most fundamental challenges that we face, really reducing the profound levels of unsustainable inequality that are built up, as well as the climate catastrophe that's already upon us. What I hold out for is those unusual alliances that we're going to need, not just in Europe, but also in many other countries around the world. There's new opportunities in Brazil, where again, civil society can act with responsible investors and responsible companies to demonstrate to Lula and the government there that there can be a genuine transformation of the appalling policies that have been carried out over the last period by Bolsonaro and his government. 
there are also opportunities now to work, for instance, in South Africa. Again, we've got regulatory opportunities, such as the due diligence proposal in South Korea, the due diligence law in Mexico. This is not exclusive to Europe with genuine cooperation and a willingness to stand up for what we believe in and what we know to be essential now for humanity's future. The opportunity of building those unusual alliances between civil society and those better actors in business and investment can make an extraordinary difference over this next year. That's not to say for a minute we're not going to also have to tackle the attacks that are upon civil society from irresponsible business. These attacks on human rights defenders, on environmental defenders, the upholding of the principles that Black Lives Matter, Me Too, the trade unions stand for. But I also hope that we can find those like-minded actors across markets and the private sector to bolster those arguments and build a better future, creating the conditions under which politicians will act much more boldly in 2023 than they were acting in 2013, for instance. It certainly feels like we need to make sure the momentum is maintained. But there are, as we've discussed, some areas for optimism. Let's see what happens over the coming 12 months. As ever, a great pleasure. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you.